Welcome to the Economic and Political History Podcast, where we discuss the latest ideas on the intersection of economics, political science, and history. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Economic and Political History Podcast. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Sanford University. And today I have the great pleasure of being with Branko Milanovic, Branko is senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the City University of New York. And he's also visiting professor at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics. Branko is also the author of Visions of Inequality from the French Revolution to the End of the Cold War. This is a book that was recently published by University Press, and I'm very happy of having uh, Branko here. Branko, how are you? Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. No, thanks for being here. I'm very, very excited about uh, our conversation. We're going to be talking about the book and your view on inequality. But before that, I would like to start by asking you about your life and your career. And I'm curious about, about how you ended up being interested in inequality. Now it seems such a trendy topic that naturally uh, seems something that people would be interested in working on, but um, what was the origin of that interest in particular in the context of what you describe as the eclipse of of inequality? Yes, well, it's a good question, actually. As you said, today, it's a kind of a no-brainer because many people are interested in inequality. And, of course, there are lots of data, and it is considered, um, uh, how should they say, sufficiently intellectually challenging topic that people would sort of work on it. But it was very different in practically all aspects. First of all, I got interested in the topic when I was studying at university in what is today Serbia and in the past was Yugoslavia. Was um, uh, because I was working actually I was studying economics, but economics and statistics. So we had lots of statistics, and as you know, statistics are actually a lot of it. It's about uh, about uh, the distribution, but. Uh, I really couldn't see exactly where to apply these distributions. And on the other hand, I was interested in social issues because I was very much influenced by Marxist literature, which of course puts the social issues at the forefront. And what very few people nowadays know, because very few people read Marx, and I'm sure we'll speak about that later, Marx is very empirical. There are lots of data. So, uh, anyway, when I first time saw that actually you had the, an application for social, for somebody who was socially interesting, of uh, distribution functions, and that application was really for the distribution of income. And well, I really became very much interested. And then basically I started studying, you know, Lawrence curves, uh, the Gini coefficient, the Taylor coefficient, and so on. So the, the interest came from the combination of the two. Uh, interest in statistics combined with interest in sort of explaining social issues or sort of analytically looking at them. Can I ask you more about your training as an economist and, well, the era of influence of of socialism or communism and and your transition to, um, well, to a career in the U.S.? with uh, such a different framework and from, well, from every possible angle. How was that process? Uh, I don't know if you mind talking about your arrival here in the U.S. and, and how did that work? It's a long question, but I would not say that it was very different because, uh, the, for example, my undergraduate studies were a combination of, uh, yeah, indeed, we, we studied Marx, but we studied also what is considered neoclassical economics. The two things actually, how should I say, were studied simultaneously. And I don't think it's a wrong approach. I actually think it's very sad that uh, people do not have that approach. Because what the classical approach gives you is economics, seen, actually, or the political economy. And we'll talk about that in the book. As, as explaining 
long-term economic process. You know, when you study neoclassical supply and demand, it's explaining to you why the apples cost $1.50, but it doesn't tell you why feudalism was replaced by capitalism nor different stages of capitalism. You just don't have that. You, you have actually, I would even say, fairly simplistic views. I read today all these debates, hundreds of debates, inflation right 2%, 3%, 4%. Okay, fine. It really doesn't matter in a greater scheme of things. What matters is actually whether U.S. would maintain its advantage, whether uh, artificial intelligence would actually make labor in some areas redundant, how it would play socially or politically. These are the issues. But, you know, unfortunately, we have, and I, well, I'm not already to the divisions of inequality, unfortunately, we have lived and continue to live through an eclipse still of economics in the sense that these broad factors where economics explains the rise and fall of nations and uh, the rise and fall of different types of civilizations is not studied, or it's actually studied less, let's say, than the first one when you explain the price of apples in the, you know, 60th street in New York. Let's, let's use that then to start talking about the book, right? And... What you do is that, and this is a super interesting book in many dimensions, and one of those is that it's a history of economic thought book, but has a very intense uh, empirical description, and it's also very rich from uh, an economic history perspective, but still the structure is quite focused on a set of thinkers, right? There are seven, you start with Kene, then you follow with uh, Smith, Ricardo, Marx, uh, Pareto and then Kuznets, right? And I guess I'm sure that everyone asks, asks you this, but why are those the ones that you were focusing on and not others? Are there any omissions that you think are relevant? And I have to tell you, like the first, I, I have a few in mind. I thought, well, why, why are we not talking about Malthus and his obsession with and concern with the poor, right? And I thought also about John Stuart Mill, that for political theories, it's always the person they think about when they think about distributional uh, matters. Yeah. Well, okay, very good question. Let me just put it like that. First of all, um, uh, the choice, they are like, like for many choices in life, there is one subjective and there is one objective part. The subjective part is that the, the six people who you mentioned were really the authors that I've been reading for many years and actually have written articles. For example, not many people write articles about Kene, and I, I did actually, because Kene is double icon that we has a sort of a uh, summarized or embellished income distribution of France by around 1760. So that attracted me to Kene. And of course, the others that you mentioned, like Carlos Smith, Ricardo, and Marx, uh, were. People who have really read Marx, as I mentioned before, since I was 17 or 18. Uh, Smith later, maybe the first time when I read Smith 23, probably Ricardo, probably around the same time, if not earlier. Uh, and then obviously, Pareto and Puznets were crucial for my work on income inequality because we used methodology that was developed by, by Pareto. And of course, we used the inverted U curve that was, of course, developed by Puznets. Uh, so that was kind of in uh, you know combination based on the people whom I really knew well. So when I wrote the book, I reread and read more things from them. But there was nothing really new. No, I mean nothing per se that I was like learning about individuals. I learned more about their lives, but not really so much about what they wrote. Then we go to your really good question. First, Malthus. I really have not read Malthus, and I have to say that uh, because I was able to buy Marx, I have developed really strong aversion. You just have to develop this aversion because uh, even on a purely individual level, then I read uh, his uh, correspondence with Ricardo and that aversion really increased because while Ricardo is polite, nice, pleasant, friendly, even in disagreements, he remains uh, friendly. Malthus is not. Malthus is unpleasant, uh, uh, ready for fights, for quarrels. Uh, and on the other hand, he's a minister. And you think, like, well, I mean, 
these people hate people and can is minister of religion. So anyway, I have to say Malthus on a purely personal level, I just don't like it. Uh, John Stuart Mill is a different issue and actually he's mentioned again because Marx wrote about him and he has obviously that the very famous division between the laws of production which are sort of natural technological and laws of distribution which are socially oriented um, so produced by society uh, so maybe he could have been included and a person who I also wanted to include but eventually I realized that there was not enough in my opinion to give him an entire chapter was somewhat strangely Samir Amin. And the reason he's mentioned towards the end of the book, because actually the, the, the neo-Marxist thinkers introduced an entirely new dimension, which was to look at internal distribution within a country during the context or it is being determined by the global um, relations of power. And in Samir Amin's case, it's very clearly, for example, the dissertation or he, he talks about the Egyptian, uh, the distribution of uh, income in Egypt as being really the influence that determined by the external factors. So he was the one that actually I thought of making him number seven, but as I said, um, I did not uh, because I just didn't think that there was enough for him to have entire chocolate. At least that was, according to my reading, obviously somebody might have different views. And maybe structuralists were, that's another possibility I was thinking. Uh, but as I mentioned in the introduction, the knowledge of the Latin American structuralism was not sufficient. Let, let me use this mention to the international view of Amin to ask you something about Kene, because um, one of the things that the, well, the physiocrats in job, but Kene in particular seems to be quite different from the broader intellectual move of the period, I guess, the mercantilist ideas, it's actually its internal, like, oriented approach, right? And in a certain way, what I was thinking was that that's probably at the core of the way in which we think about inequality today, inequality within a country. Maybe mercantilists were thinking probably about inequality, but across countries and the serious like logic that they had was probably quite reflective of that, but can ask him to be right, maybe the first person thinking so within the society and about, well, the conflicts that emerge across classes and so on. So I want to ask you about that, about the origins of that set of ideas of thinking society as a given thing and wondering about what's happening internally and what are probably the origins of that, the expansion of the notion of the nation state was important? What was the thing in the French context that maybe was important for Kenneth to have that approach? How how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I actually think Kenneth is, uh, is very important. Uh, and I, I think Kenneth, as you said, actually, first is important because there was a, a marked uh, break from Merkel. Even if you were to push, kind of, to push, like, to try to impose some kind of uh, interest or order about income distribution on mercantilists, you would probably end up, as we're saying, by seeing mercantilists as essentially discussing international inequality and interests, really, interests of power. Uh, and of course, their interest was maximization of, like, having positive balance of pay, the maximization of inflow of species into a country. So there was not really an interest for internal distribution, essentially because it was believed that, that uh, you know, most of the people would leave it something like the subsistence, but what they were interested in was how the king would, how much power the king would have vis-a-vis -vis other kings. Okay, so what is the difference with, with, uh, with physiocrats? Big difference first, actually, the welfare of what this says, Kenes uh, speaks of exiles. Uh, the, the welfare of the majority of the people becomes really the objective of economic policy. That's the first. Secondly, the class structure is defined. The class structure looks more or less like the French um, uh, a structure before the revolution with, with legally defined classes. And a top class, which he calls propriété, is defined, and that top class receives a surplus, which is also a totally new 
idea that there is the economic activity produces the surplus. So at least there are three important novelties that we actually take almost as given, and that is actually the class structure of society, the idea of the surplus, and the welfare of the most of society is an objective of economic policy. And then when it comes to policies, obviously what was, you know, important for them was, as it was succinctly put in uh, laissez-faire, uh, laissez-faire, is the abolishment of all the internal barriers to trade and the uh, reduction of the government influence for the guild system, regulations, and rest on entrepreneurs. So, you know, they have a very strong, also modern component, which you can really relate to today's developments. So I think it was, they were very important in, uh, in, in development of uh, economic thought. And I'm actually um, quite happy to put Kene as the, as the first thinker, and then uh, Prasanna Smith uh, as the second. And I just want to mention that the two of them are the only two people in the book of the six that we spoke about who actually met physically. The others uh, did not. Let's, let's get into Smith then, and um, following this theme on liberalism, most people uh, describe Smith as a pro-capitalist uh, figure. Right? And one of the things that you do in the book is trying to argue against that, and I thought it was quite interesting. So I want you to tell me what exactly do you mean by the fact that Smith was not capitalist or even against capital in a certain way or capitalist better maybe and why do you think that the public opinion and even the intelligentsia if we want to call them um, do not um, see Smith usually from that perspective what are we reading wrong of Smith well I would also put later your question so you Reminded me actually relationship between Spinnick and Ricardo because I think they are differently read today compared to what they really were. But let's go with, with Smith. Like, you know, uh, indeed Smith was for things that they already mentioned in relationship to to physiocrats. He was for uh, freedom of trade. Uh, he was also for reduction of the importance of power of government, but. And that's actually the key issue that it totally disregarded today in a, what I believe is extraordinary selective reading of Smith. He was against the influence of capitalist interest on government policy. I can sort of say word by word 10 times, but he was very skeptical of any organization. And that skepticism about organizations goes against uh, even organized religion. He has a number of comments in the Wealth of Nations, very critical of organized religion. He sees it essentially as popular prejudice, which is not the case in the theory of our So, organized religion, uh, organized labor in passing, but not, not very much, because he believes that workers are uneducated and have little influence on government policy, and consequently are unlikely to influence government policy. Uh, uh, and his sort of uh, uh, a very strong statement against capitalists being able to influence government policy because he believed that actually he saw like East India as an extreme example of that. They were only interested in obviously maximizing their income. They are actually quite indifferent to the fate of the country where they are, and they are very sophisticated. And they are, uh, thereby, they have quite a lot of influence on government policy. And finally, which I think is a very important point that actually I really would urge people to read, is that he believes that the only source of income which goes down with the development of capitalism is uh, profit. Because rents go up since the demand for land increases. The wages go up because every advanced society is characterized by increase in the welfare of the majority of people, which was the workers, and only profit goes down 
because there is simply more stock, as he calls it, more capital, and that capital competes against each other and profit rate goes down. The same story like in Marx, basically, or you know, Ricardo. And then, then they have, they do not have an interest for societal improvement because they know that it would drive their sorts of income down. And what is interesting is that he actually derives the danger of capitalists giving advice to the or actually determining government policy from the from the distributional side, from the fact that their sorts of income is going to go down. And I think these elements, the two elements in particular, the, uh, to repeat, the uh, uh, Smith very negative attitude towards capitalist as uh, influencer of policies and the derivation of that from distributional concerns are totally disregarded and not really mentioned even the second was certainly not mentioned in literature as a discussion on honestly what why do you think that that's a case is it like fully like specific interest that have been able to hit in this or is just uh i don't know i guess the focus on the most uh, visible and sexiest part of like I don't know the invisible hand is something that probably gives the sense that it's just that capitalists are just the essential part of the story of how society works I don't know what, what what's your but I, I hypothesis think that of course it's, it dates highly of what the entrepreneur and capitalist under the conditions of uh, free competition but he says, and I intentionally use this term, he uh, talked about really existing or real existing capitalists. Like he doesn't use these words. I'm using them from the today's perspective. He doesn't even use the word capitalism. He uses commercial society. But he, when he discusses the commercial society as it is, he is extraordinarily um, uh, negative about the way that the wealth is acquired. And basically, that's why I put it in on one page, one statement after another from from Smith. He talks about plunder, monopoly, um, uh, 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 slavery, uh, all the types of uh, uh, all the ways that people have become rich in a commercial society, and practically all of that involved address swing or the use of political or economic power to make money and so on. So these quotes are many. They are they are all over the, the place uh, in the wealth of nature. But why it didn't become interpreted like that? I think it's because of the selective reading, because of political influence, and because if you take only the quotes where he criticizes the government and the interference of government with the natural sort of development of um, of, of societies, which actually the film was quoted, where actually were very little but tolerable application of, of uh, justice or less interference with the state is, is sufficient for societies to develop. If you just take that criticism and totally disregard the other one, then of course he becomes a critic of government interference and government influence, and he becomes ipso facto a supporter of capitalists. But he was not, as I was saying. So it, it, it takes a more, uh, I think, uh, close reading, or actually it takes any reading, because I think many of these quotes are what people know, and they have never read them in the context. Right, that's super interesting. And after Smith, you uh, delve into Ricardo, right? And you describe Ricardo as someone profoundly concerned with class conflict, right? And... What I'm curious there is about the role of the Industrial Revolution in this view, right? Because, well, by the time that Ricardo was working on his ideas, well, the UK was being transformed already in a significant way by what we call now the Industrial Revolution. How important was that in, in, in his views on, on inequality? You know, Ricardo is, is a, what was it, each of the writers that I'm talking about are very interesting, but he is super interesting as well for many reasons. Uh, uh, you know, he takes a, a totally local issue, which was the corn laws in the in the uh, Great Britain, and uh, he transforms this local issue 
into something which really became the foundational stone of economics. And he does that because of the extremely uh, abstract analysis that he does with four laws. So you don't need to worry anymore about uh, about Great Britain or anything. It's, it's so abstract that actually that you derive, uh, you know, the sort of economic thinking is derived to a large extent from the from the principle. It's actually basically a model of economy that that he um, that he presents there. Uh, but if I were to actually take that was I think an interesting point. If I were to, let's suppose that I am a big fan of uh, capitalist and the what. By the way, speak actually explicitly says that uh, the government should never support um, uh, masters, meaning employers, uh, of gatherings because they always gather in order to work against public interest and to actually organize themselves and monopolize the power, economic power. And what we see today is very opposite. The governments actually grow and are very happy that capitalists make in Davos and governments participate. So it, it's really, if I were to, by the way, going back to what I was going, started to say, if I were to choose a thinker as a capitalist who, whom I would actually support, who supports me, is Ricardo. Ricardo is it is the quad book is written because of the fear that more and more of net, um, net produce or net income would belong to the uh, landlord, and consequently, capitalists would be squeezed. And if they're squeezed, they don't come uh, uh, where we go for investment. And if there is no investment, there is no growth. So Ricardo sees capitalists as an entirely active agent which drives capitalists to grow. And when he says in the introduction of principles that Spain was quote, that uh, the, the problem of the distribution is the central problem of political economy. It precisely means that if the end result of the car law is that most of the income is in the hands of, of landlords and very little income is in the hands of capitalists, there will be no growth. End of story. So if I were to choose who is the pro-capitalist thinker, it's Ricardo. It's not split. But Ricardo, interestingly, for many reasons, including labor theory of value, developed and because of the sharpness of the conflict, had a whole slew of um, Ricardo socialists, as you know, and of course of Marx, and then Ricardian. So he actually has lots of left-wing thinkers, where this really thinking, or really thinking, is entirely pro-capitalist. And this is, uh, this is weird, and, uh, and uh, Smith was thinking, actually, as I was saying before, is very critical of, of uh, employer, becomes emblematic writer for the capitalist class. So something really doesn't match between these two, two, two water. And now perception of that. That's a very interesting paradox. It's uh, it's true, right? The legacy of this thinking these thinkers have been has been disconnected pretty much from some of its uh, core ideas. And probably that uh, which is in the right direction to talk about Marx, right? Which is the one that follows after Ricardo. And it was for me very interesting. It's been a while since I read something about Marx, but I also, I studied in, in Colombia, still somewhat influenced from the ideas of, uh, of Marxist uh, theories. And my dad was also, uh, was a Marxist in his youth, so... I started reading uh, quite a bunch of the things that he read when he was young. And what I remember feeling back then was that um, in these uh, books about the history of economic thought from a Marxist per perspective, the story was a bit like, you know, there were these sort of rigorous classical thinkers and there were relevant ideas to discuss there. Then there were the utopian socialists and then came Marx that was the, a real scientific socialist, right? And then recently in the last few years, there's some people that have argued that Marx maybe was just one of other socialist thinkers, right? And there's this paper that was uh, quite discussed recently sort of arguing that. And then I want to ask you about it, right? So 
Well, first, what were Marx's ideas on distribution as you describe them, describe them in the book? And how accurate is this description that Marx was profoundly different from other socialists of, uh, of that generation? Well, first, uh, do you have the paper? I cannot remember the author. The one from the Journal of Political Economy. Yep, that's the one I had in mind. That yeah, I actually was in sort of discussion. I even wrote for the Marx bicentenary uh, of his birth a uh, long article about uh, uh, why Marx became so famous. And of course, uh, obviously, the the revolution, Russian Revolution, played a huge role. Lenin played a huge role. Uh, but that's not the critique, you know. If without the depression, there will not be case, you know. So the, the article is actually, uh, I have to say, in its original idea, is that, how should they say, either trivial or obvious, you know. If there was no commercial revolution, there would be no Smith. You know, if, if Scotland had not actually developed as much during Smith's lifetime, so that he himself, as he says, could observe the advantages of commercial society and the advantages of government with England too. Uh, there will be no wealth of nation. So when you, when you say, well, there was an external event like the Russian Revolution and then Marx became, uh, of course, the leader read everywhere, it, it's, it's not an argument against. It's actually, uh, it's, it's, uh, that's how thinkers become thinkers. Is if there was no Florentine words, there would be no Machiavelli. So, like, I mean, it's a bizarre idea that I sh that, that was in this paper. But, leaving that paper, uh, going to what Steve, you know, he was the one that, uh, uh, among many, of course, that least uh, the depth of his thinking uh, and the areas that he covered puts him really ahead of many others. And the fact that he was not the utopian socialist thinker makes him, of course, much more attractive because he is not, as he believed, he's not describing, and he spent very little time in describing socialist society, but he is studying, and he believed, he developed, the, the discovered the laws of motion of society. So, he is the only describer of what he believes societies and how societies would evolve and why proletarian class would eventually be the last class that would uh, rule because obviously, as you know, they, they don't have an interest of their own in mind, but they have societal interest in mind. So he was he had that threat and that vision. Uh, combined with philosophical and economic, that others did not. And I don't see that as a, a sort of an accidental that, uh, event that actually he became sort of singled out and the, and the entire artist school developed. Now, that school was already present before 1917, as you know, in the Social Democratic Party, but there was a split uh, with, uh, with Bernstein most famously that essentially saw Marxism as a very useful for ideological reasons, but not for, as, as uh, Bernstein said, not for the goal. Their goal was no longer replacement of capitalism by socialism, the uh, Social Democratic Party in Germany, but the, the, the objective was improvement in capitalism. So he, he was obviously even then a very important thinker, but he was really more important by the Russian Revolution and then by the association between the socialist rule of thought and uh, decolonization. So that was something obviously that came with the events and probably without the Russia revolution that would not have. Right, let's get now into Pareto. And um, there you describe a sharp well, I don't know if sharp, but like a clear disruption between the way in which inequality was um, being understood and even measured uh, before and after, right? And on the one hand, you have this move away from social classes and this focus on probably the individual and also a sharper 
um, distinction between maybe two groups and or rather focus on the elites and I don't know how much this actually represents the idea of social classes at least not from the same perspective that the authors before right um, and then my question there is what were the forces behind this change of view on inequality and then a similar question to the one I raised when talking about Smith why when at least in economics when we think about Barreto we usually think about his contributions and I guess a conventional neoclassical theory right sociologists talk a lot about his ideas on elites and more generally speaking about distribution uh, but why do you think that economists have um, ignored broadly speaking those uh, those ideas um, well, they can't have ignored the idea of the elite uh, in Pareto. As you said, actually, it was much more sociologists who, you know, were influenced by Pareto, Lostka, Sorrell, and so on. But the economists were not. Uh, but they were influenced by Pareto's view about the income distribution because of the uh, the power law, the, of the Pareto constant. So he is present but ideologically, Pareto is, of course, also an extremely interesting person because he uh, originally develops his own thinking. He was a, a classic liberal at the very beginning, and then, of course, towards the end of his life, he was a very critical liberalism. As you know, there were also some allegations, which I don't think are very strong, but of his sort of, uh, how should I say, flirtation with fascism. He died at Betis, so, you know, he became... Uh, Mussolini appointed him to be a senator, but it was really a honorific function. Anyway, so uh, full uh, original thinking was available also in reaction to Marx in a very special way. He believed, uh, and that comes from his sociological views, he believed that essentially social means liberal way, in the same way that later uh, Schumpeter believed the thing. But he believed socialism would win because the not because of the laws of social societies that Marx discovered, but because of the commitment, belief, self-abnegation of the forces that defend that promote the socialism. In other words, he saw them like the first Christian. They would actually were willing to sacrifice themselves, eventually they would win. But then he was an engineer studying income, you know, starting getting the numbers from the Pareto coefficient would come later. He actually then argued, yes, you can wait, but in terms of income distribution, you would not change much. And I have empirical evidence that all this data that I have collected show more or less the same distribution at the top, but the social class would change. So in other words, you know, he actually he found, out, found uh, things which are so uh, supportive of his own thinking. He believed in the circulation of the elites. He believed that there would be an elite composed of Lionel, that was the elite socialist, versus the elite of Foxes, that was a capitalist elite, which doesn't use force so much, but uses cunning and uh, propaganda to maintain power. And then he said the new elite would come, and that interview would, it would not change income distribution. And he actually, in many ways, right that the socialism, when it came, Marxist socialism, just had a new elite. And that elite was based on other criteria, not private ownership of the means of production, but the position in a hierarchy. So he was, in that sense, uh, uh, he was, in that sense, right. Uh, but he was, of course, not right, as we know now in belief that income distribution is immutable or that there is some kind of viral law and so on. But it really, as I was saying before, it really fitted his views of the circulation of the elite with unchanged income distribution very well. So he, uh, I think he was very happy to have discovered that, uh, that uh, income distributions do not vary very much at the top. Now, finally, the last of the authors that you explore in the book is uh, Simon Kuznets, right? 
And he has this uh, sort of optimistic view of uh, of inequality in the sense that he thinks that eventually with economic growth and he has a strong emphasis studying economic growth. So it's an interesting also element that integrates and complements his views on inequality. He argues that eventually that uh, is going to lead to reductions in inequality. And what I'm curious there is uh, about the role of his exposure to what was happening in the U.S., right? So he was writing in the middle of the 20th century, experiencing the uh, sustained growth of the U.S. Um, how important was this for his ideas? What type of data was he seeing? Was he actually being able to see a reduction in equality? Uh, how were these elements important in his view of of, of inequality in the, in the long term? Well, the first let me say since you mentioned, but the, the, all the albers in the book are actually strong supporters of economic growth. I already mentioned that for Kenne, obviously it was sweet also because of the importance of the uh, uh, of, of the prosperity or actually opulence, as he says, of the of the middle classes or at least the working class. The middle class does not appear as in the way. Regard obviously was. Of Marx was for growth. Uh, I read, I think indirectly, I'm not quite sure that actually very directly, and of course, that's likewise. Um, and it's important to situate each of the authors as the book does, because the book, the structure, as you know, the chapters is actually to say something about rule from lives of the authors. So it's not Wikipedia page, it's something really that is very interesting. And then to situate them. And uh, within the income distribution, all the countries that they studied and worked. So obviously, for Marx, it is actually the British income distribution of the latter part of the second part of the 19th century and German as well, uh, for Kenya, French, and so forth. But for Kuznets, it's important to situate him as well in the context. And what was the context of Kuznets? And that's absolutely a big key. First, he's working in the United States during the starts from before the World War II, but during World War II and afterwards. And he uh, sort of derives his, uh, in, in terms of income in distribution, his pain was inverted U shape per in 1955. Now, that was the time where the U.S. had a total supremacy economically in the world by producing uh, 3% of the world population, is producing 40% of the global out. So that's the first so there is an optimistic view which comes from that. Secondly, the growth rate was recovered during the war in the U.S. was very high, and then there was a small depression in 47, but then it continued quite well, and growth was very good. Third, the U.S. experienced significant degrees in income inequality. So much as a quote in the book, Art Burns saying, writing, in like, I think, 15 or 20 years, we have... Uh, uh, traveled one-third of the road to complete equality. So there are three elements, political, economic dominance and political of the United States, secondly, high growth rate, and third, reduction of inequality. So obviously, Kuznets' view tended to be very optimistic because of what he has experienced here where he, in the United States when he was born. And then uh, that was translated also to the sort of more general level, in the same way that, that you know, uh, Ricardo took a particular problem of England and created it into a general issue. And likewise, because it's dated with the inverted U-shaped curve. And that the data that he got were very, well, with you, I actually mentioned it, okay, I don't remember what it was, like six or eight, or six countries or six data points. He had obviously the U.S., he had a little bit of a charm money, because there were some terrible data from before World War I. Uh, there was, I think, uh, about the new countries, Ceylon, which is today Sri Lanka. Uh, I think it was Costa Rica. There were like really like very few data points. As he said, my own, he said for himself, my own uh, idea is 95% speculation and 5% data. But he shared this data, and then later, of course, we got many more data. And as you know, the fall, uh, Role industry developed by discussing the whether the Kuznets curve exists or doesn't exist, 
and even I, in my book, The Global Inequality, then went using uh, that and arguing that actually what business observed was the first wave where actually inequality expanded and then they were forced to withdraw down. And then each technological revolution is, in some sense, the wave of a rising inequality, which then gets offset through dissipation of brands, political decision-making, or the reduction of the rate of profit. So, you know, I think you can, you can ease, well, not easily, but you can certainly view Kuznets' original statement to be just one of the waves that would later come. And I think we can argue that actually today's wave started in the 1980s or mid-80s or early 90s. So, uh, again, you should put him in the context, and I think one should also feel free, as I did with Kuznets waves, to actually go beyond because that's why you was think the same thing that of course happened with Ricard or Marx or even Smith. Let me ask you, I guess, final question that um, address how you finish the book and how you see the future of the research um, on inequality. And what you describe is that after Kuznets, what we have is an eclipse. And that's a very nice term, I guess, because eclipse don't last forever, and I guess we're seeing the exposed of, of it. Um, and what I'm interested uh, in knowing your thoughts on are about the how long can this uh, period after the eclipse uh, last, right? And how important can be individual figures in this process, right? Are we, if you were going to be writing this book 20 years from now, do you think that you would need one more chapter for this post-eclipse period? Um, are you concerned about some risk on this agenda in the future? How do you think about the field in in the present and the uh, coming years, decades? Uh, well, I, I sit very optimistically because as you said, the eclipse don't last forever. And secondly, there are again uh, uh, developments that uh, in the real world, real economy, that have brought the eclipse to an end. And then obviously, I think the person who was uh, intellectually the most, uh, who contributed the most to the end of the eclipse is Piketty. I think there is no doubt about that. But again, like in his case, like in every case that we have mentioned, it was the underlying economic and political development that it brought a certain point of view when it was expressed and when people saw that it is it correlates well with the development to the fall. You know, if Piketty had published and I know his work because I don't give for a long time also, and his book, for example, which is very similar to uh Capital in the 21st Century, which dealt with France was published I think ten years earlier. If he had published also Capital in the first century in 2005, nobody would pay the net. The bad, the fact that it was paid and it was published after the global financial crisis, after the the top 1% growth was revealed, and on the other hand, the middle class growth, which was covered up through the ability to borrow, was exposed by the crime. That predisposed a search, and we had actually beginning of a search for us. And of course, when Bikadis uh, will kill along, it provided a very powerful answer to the question that we were already asked. So I'm uh, uh, optimistic for the future because I think, first, we have many more things than there are. Secondly, people find it, as I said in the very beginning, much more challenging. So they are actually very eager to work on it, while in the past, they were seeing that as a sort of a backwater that only if you're like some crazy socialist, you want to study that, but if you really are a top guy, you would do financial economics and, you know, go to Wall Street or actually be an economist who was hired by Wall Street. Now it's different, and I think it lost. And uh, we have now three developments, and maybe I'll finish with that, which I find very comfortable and very, uh, what should I say, the problem is which enable me to think very optimistically about the future. 
The first one is the return of capital back to the city. You know, during the eclipse, we studied a lot wage differentials, you know, uh, skill work, society, scale, all of that. But capital, capital, which is crucial, which actually represents not only, you know, 20% of the GDP, but also represents a large part of income of the top, was really excluded. Tony Atkins, towards the end of his life, realized that and he wanted actually to break the capital back. So that's the return of capital as a uh, uh, object of study and its influence of income distribution, which now was would be reinforced by the artificial value. The second development is uh, the creation of uh, uh, historical social tables, which means these are the, the only source of information that we now can create from the past society, where we create classes, and depending on society, opposite classes would be differently defined, and their mean incomes and size, and that enables us to actually study inequality among the Aztecs, Byzantine Empire, Roman Empire, uh, Iraq, Mesopotamia in the 10th century, and then I think eventually we will be able to make to formulate hypotheses about the big approaches that are reading with equality in not only present societies, but in the past. And the third is the global inequality, because global inequality was obviously with globalization, but opens up, but, but also opens up a number of new issues that we didn't look at that from that angle before. It opens up the issues of uh, migration, which is related to inequality between the, the countries, opens up the issue of the global middle class, quote unquote, opens up the issue of the replacement in the very top income distribution of Europeans and Western Asians. So there are many uh, topics there which are new, and uh, uh, that actually an appropriate topic of study for the time of globalization. So these are the reasons why there may be others, because we have more data, as I said, mentioned before, but these are the key reasons why I'm very optimistic about the future in terms of studies. That's great. I'm I'm very excited to hear how enthusiastic you are about the future of the field. And this was probably the right time then to come with this book that talk about the past of the field, right? Let me show it again, Visions of Inequality. Thanks a lot for um, for being here. This was a delightful conversation. Uh, I hope to, to see you soon. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was really very, very pleasant, very nice. And thanks a lot for the questions, which enabled me to sort of go through the entire book, author by author. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today to the Economic and Political History Podcast. Don't forget to stay connected with us on YouTube and Spotify. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Javier Mejia C and connect with me on LinkedIn. You can find me as Javier Mejia Cubillos. Until next time, stay engaged. Thank you and take care.